uh, Matthew chapter 12. After Easter break, we're coming back to our text where we've been going verse by verse through the book of Matthew. Today we're going to finish chapter 12. And um, it, it closes out, uh, it actually closes out with two smaller sections or two smaller teachings that really don't have hardly anything to do with each other. Um, but I'm going to try to take them both just for the sake of closing out the chapter. Um, so this is kind of like a buy one, get one free today. Um, and I'm not going to keep you here all day. You're like, oh, great. Like he's doing two sermons, not one. It's true. Um, but they're going to they're gonna be shorter um, than they normally would be. So we're, we're going uh, to go uh, 43, verse 43 of chapter 12 uh, till the end. Um, but uh, right now we're just going to read and handle 43 uh, through 45. Okay, which, uh, which says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. And then it says, I will return to my house from where I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty and swept and put in order. And then it goes and it brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. All right. Um, fun, fun text, right? Um, I, feel, I feel like, so like we have an algorithm that just naturally happens between the three pastors as we move through. But I, I feel like Chad and Brandon are like getting together and being like, oh, it's a demon passage. Like, we're going to give this to David. Um, I, I seem to get the demon stuff, you know, because I'm, I'm such an expert demonologist that um, just love talking about it. So here we are again with this demon thing. Um, it's kind of an interesting um, little uh, parable, and we might as well get, get used to parables now. You know why? Because we're about to go into the hall of parables. Like as soon as we leave um, uh, chapter 12 and get into 13, it's parable after parable after parable, so we might as well warm up. Uh, this is kind of a, kind of a warm up, but uh, to recap, since it's been a couple weeks since we've been in Matthew, um, what Jesus is doing and what he's been doing prior to this in chapter 12 is educating the masses in Jerusalem on the difference between the appearance of righteousness and the possession of righteousness. Those are two different things. And so he's been going through different examples and different kinds of teaching to make sure that they understand the difference between appearing as though you're righteous but, and then actually possessing a righteousness that is real, right? And he does this through this entire chapter. And, and, he's, and he's doing it because um, there's, there's a bunch of people there, there's a bunch of people present and living in that generation that think that they have that right. And they don't. They have it wrong. They have it wrong. Um, and this is serious, serious stuff. So Jesus is calling out the generation of this generation of God-following frauds, we could say, um, or imposters. And um, now we're going to see him like reiterate this to them once more in this parable that we get from him of a man who's occupied by a demon. Um, that's a good way to get someone to hate you, isn't it? You know, like uh, like tell them they have a demon. You know what I mean? Or give them, give them a story on, a, on, on someone who's possessed. Um, Jesus really did shoot straight, um, typically, when he, when he taught. Um, 
he's a straight shooter, and I love that about him, but it, it didn't get him many points with people. So um, we're, we're, we're given this, this parable. I think you guys all know what a parable is. It's a, basically an allegorical story which communicates a reality or a truth. That's all it is. It's basically allegory that communicates a truth or establishes a truth. And so um, by nature, a parable kind of, kind of has two layers um, to it because you've got the allegorical component, that, that narrative which is allegory, saying what it says, the example, and then ultimately the truth that it's speaking to. And so it's kind of, it's kind of double layered. So we're going to go ahead and move through the imagery of the allegory first, and then we'll unpack the ultimate or true um, meaning. And so we start off in v- verse 43 by seeing that when the unclean spirit's gone out of a person, uh, which is weird, and we don't know why, uh, but again, allegory, uh, it passes through, Jesus says, waterless um, places. And I don't know what you think of, but I kind of think of maybe like wilderness or pl- places that are uh, uh, kind of lifeless. Um, really, you get, you, get, you get the imagery of a desert. I think of a desert when I think of waterless places. Uh, me and my wife moved up from SoCal. We lived for a while in the Mojave Desert. Um, don't rec- I don't recommend it. It's just stupid. Uh, it's, it's dry. Uh, there's tumbleweeds. The wind always blows. And, uh, and then there's rattlesnakes, and that's it. Uh, there's, really, there's really nothing else. And um, I, I think, a wa- I think of a, when I think of waterless places, I, I, my mind goes back to where we used to live. Um, it conjures up the idea of an unhealthy place, a waterless place, right? A dry place. Uh, places that were considered like, like this through ancient Jewish tradition to be more void of God's blessing due to the lack of rain. Because rain can give us pasture, which allows us to have cattle and livestock. Or rain gives us crops where we can grow food that sustains us. Um, and and when, you, when you don't have that, um, then they're lifeless places. So it was actually uh, held um, throughout tradition uh, with the Jewish mind to be a place that's void of God's blessing, actually, which is kind of interesting. And so in Jesus' parable, the unclean spirit goes through and goes to these waterless places to do what? What's it say? To seek rest. It's, uh, it's looking for rest. I, I put AKA like to find a home. Like it's looking for a home. Um, to find, basically you could even say an unhealthy victim is, is kind of actually what it, what it alludes to here. So um, he's seeking Rest, And we see throughout our scriptures that a demon or an unclean spirit seeks to be, desires to be, for whatever reason, again, I'm not a demonologist, they seek to be embodied. It's kind of a weird thing. Um, it, it, it kind of seems that if they don't occupy a body, that they're uneasy. Um, demons are, for some reason, looking to be clothed or looking to be housed. Uh, and I know that's a scary thing to consider as you go through life and look at people around you. Uh, I have a few that I have my suspicions about. Um, this unclean spirit that it's, that it's seeking rest tells me, implies that it's restless. That it's restless. And that's all I need to know, to know that this isn't good. Uh, this isn't good at all. And, and Jesus says that the unclean spirit here seems to have no luck finding a new place to settle in. So 
it decides to go back to the old neighborhood to see what's going on at the old house. It's going back to visit the old house that it once came from. Verse 44, we find this. So it comes back, and it finds the old house very welcoming. Why? Because it finds it swept, and it finds it put in order, and it finds it empty. Empty, which is the key of the teaching. Empty. And he, this, this is where the problem is <laughs> in, what's go, in, in what Jesus is communicating here. This is the beginning of the end. So for whatever reason, the unclean spirit leaves the house. We're not told why, again. But we do know that regardless of the reason, the place was unable, or the place was, while the demon was gone, able to get renovated. It was able to get cleaned up, maybe a fresh coat of paint, um, and uh, things put back in order, um, and it was able to be renovated in the absence of this unclean spirit. So it was able to get straightened up. The problem is that when it comes back, it's empty. It's straight, it's clean, but it's empty. It's found vacant. It's found unoccupied. So, so the demon, the, the unclean spirit would kind of be like, oh, look, like someone was nice enough to like tidy up the, the joint for me. How nice. You know what I mean? How nice, how welcoming, which leads to the Spirit um, once more moving back in to this old place, except this time it's different because he doesn't want to move in alone, right? Like, like he doesn't want it to be a bachelor pad, he wants it to be a crash pad this time. And we see this in verse 45. The unclean spirit, thanks to this place's newfound state, um, is perfect for a party house. It's perfect for a party house. So he grabs seven of his buddies, and they all move in. But it's not just seven anybody's that he grabs. No, he grabs seven guys that love partying way more than he does. That's what's going on here. So they're, they're way more rowdy. They're way more destructive. They're way gnarlier than the first guy. They're worse. They're going to trash the joint even harder than the first one did. And because of this, the owner of the place has now gone from one unclean squatter to eight. Thus, the last state of the person is far worse than the first. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about here, right? Like, like what's he referring to? Who is this poor dude? You know what I mean? Who is this poor guy? Well, it's not a man, if we look at the last line, singular, it is men, plural. It is the Jewish people as a whole that Jesus is talking to. That's who he's referring to, particularly, and especially the Jewish religious leaders. It is a people that Jesus is referring to. It is a nation that Jesus is referring to. It is a generation of men that Jesus is referring to here, who appear clean and who think they're clean and who think they're put in order, but they're empty. They're unoccupied. This is the current state, the spiritual state, of the collective people of Israel at that time. In their minds, they appear to be clean, sweat, put in order, but they're empty. They're ready to be occupied by someone. They're ready to be occupied by someone at any moment, but in their collective rejection of the one who they need to be occupied by, they will be worse off than they were before. 
This is what we see here being communicated. They're, they're, they're kind of like Jesus comes and he's teaching and he's prophesying and he's offering, right? He's communicating these things and they're, they're kind of like, nope, I got this. Like, I don't need your help. Not only do I not need your help, like, I don't like you. <laughs> like, the, this is basically the disposition of this generation that Jesus comes to. And to have this kind of approach to God is a death sentence. It's a death sentence. Whether you're Jewish or not, whether you lived back then or you live now, this is a death sentence. What this is that we're seeing here is the difference between reformation and regeneration. This is the difference in what we're seeing. It is the difference between being captured by the demonic or the divine. Self-reformation is deadly and, 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 um, and, and not enough because it still leaves you empty. Self-reformation, as hard as you try, as well as you clean yourself up, still leaves you empty. It still leaves you dormant. It still leaves you unoccupied. It still leaves you open and susceptible and vulnerable. It still leaves you with just you. And that's the problem. You are the problem. And I am the problem. We are the problem. And so for us to look to ourselves and to go inside ourselves, when we're the problem, to find the solution does not work. It is not there. We cannot get the solution, that which we need, out of that which is the issue. That's what self-reformation is. It's where we go, I can do this. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it. People like me. Gosh, where's that from? That's old. Sorry. That's old. It just popped in there. Right? But this is what we do is we, we think, you know what? I'm going to do better this time. Like, I'm going I'm I'm to pull myself up by my own bootstraps and I'm going to give it another go, and I'm not going to do this thing again, and I'm not going to think this way again, and I'm not going to say that thing again, and I'm not going to treat this person the way that I treated them again. And then we do. Because self-reformation is not enough. It's not the answer. We need to be regenerated. Um, Again, we refer to this all the time. I think it's so foundational, it's so key in the New Testament scriptures for Christians to understand how this thing works it's John 3. It's, it's the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a, a, a Jewish religious leader at that time. So he was one of the bad guys. But he was a curious bad guy. Like he wanted to, he, he knew there was something going on with, with Jesus and the person of Jesus and the things that Jesus was, was teaching. And so he, he, he basically has a private meeting with him one night in a dark alley so that, so that none of his buddies could see that he's coming to Jesus. Right? And Jesus tries, he proceeds to explain this thing, which is known as regeneration. And he, and he refers to the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, blowing where he will and moving where he will like the wind. So you can't see it. You can't direct him and tell him where to go. You can't capture him. He does his thing, and he lands on in those whom he chooses to. Right? This is regeneration. And so Jesus says, you you got to be born again. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God, right? And Nicodemus is like, what do you mean? Like, can I crawl back into my mom's womb? Like, he, he doesn't get it. And he goes, no, unless you're, you're born of water and, and the Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. 
That's regeneration. You and I are like a bunch of, a bunch of batteries that are empty, sitting in a car. It's silly to think that that battery can make itself go again. No, you need someone from outside to take the hood up and stick cables on that battery to get that battery powered again. We're talking about the exact same thing spiritually with you and I. We need to be powered by God in order to know God and be possessed by God. We cannot do it on our own. And so what Jesus is talking about here with Nicodemus is regeneration. This is what we need. We need to be jump-started by something outside of us so that we may have life again and bring forth life out of us. All right, cool. We all get that, right? We cannot just keep putting a fresh coat of paint on the house and think that it'll, it'll put God in our midst. It does not work that way. It will not put God in our midst. We, we need to paint the house with the blood of Christ. This is what we need by faith. That's the kind of paint we need on our houses, right? Interior first. Interior first. We need Jesus in our midst. We, we can't just clean ourselves up and think that we're free from Satan. The house must be reoccupied by, by someone greater than the one who left so that the one who left won't come back. And so that he won't come back with his buddies. Even worse. The drug addict cannot just try harder to, be a, to, 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 to not be attracted to wanting to get loaded. The criminal cannot just try harder to want to be more honest. The porn addict cannot just try harder to be less lustful. The greedy cannot just try harder to, to love poverty. The, the ego-driven cannot just try harder to be less about themselves. And the self-reliant religious cannot just try harder to alleviate their sin. We must all be reborn. We must be rebirthed. We must be regenerated by him in order to find him. Not reformed. The reformation comes after the regeneration. Not the other way around. We must have him. And these guys don't have him. And they don't want him. That's the problem here. This parable is an indictment against their vain attempts to have God accept them on their terms according to their own attempts at righteousness, and it cannot be done because God requires 100% righteousness 100% of the time. That's the standard. That's where the line is. That's why you and I and everybody we've ever known falls short of it. We cannot do it no matter how hard we try. Regeneration, not self-reformation, is what's necessary to be free from Satan and alive to God, and thus is the moral of the parable. This here is a national indictment. It is a purely religious indictment. It is a self-righteous indictment. It is a DIY indictment. Do it yourself. Do it yourself. There's no such thing in Christianity. You cannot have God that way. You cannot do it yourself. And we understand this because Jesus concludes here with the last statement, so also will it be with this evil in generation, uh, this evil generation. This is the interpretation. This is who this parable is about and who this parable is for. Kind of like you are that man. <laughs> like all, right? You remember Nathan coming to David? Um, and he's like, hey, I got a story for you. Like this one dude was a jerk and wanted this chick, but she was married, so he went and killed her husband and uh, took her. And David's like livid. 
He's like, show me who this man is. Take me to this man. Nathan's like, that's you. Like, that man is you. Right? This, this is kind of like what Jesus is doing with this parable to the people that are listening. It's them. Right? Regeneration, not reformation, is what you and I desperately need to have a relationship with God and be right with God. Okay, let's move to the next chunk. See? See? Wasn't that bad. So we have reformation, regeneration. I had to try to find a way to hook this together because it didn't go. Uh, So relation. I found something with an R. Uh, Relation is what we're going to look at at next. So that next chunk from 46 down uh, says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my... uh, Yeah, he, he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother, or my brother, and my sister, and my mother. If you want the parallel text to this in the synoptics, uh, Mark 3 is where you're going to find that one. It's basically identical. And then Luke 11 is not at all identical. It's just a little blip, but that seems to be um, Luke's kind of like wink and nod uh, to it there. Um, So first things first. How many of you have an ESV Bible. How many of you have a New American Standard? How many of you have King James? New King James. Kind of split. You're like, what the heck are we doing? I'm just trying to see who's better and who's worse. (laughs) Um, If you have an ESV or an NASV, you may have noticed something weird. Where the heck is verse 47? Now, it goes from 46 to 48, and 47 is simply not there. There's an explanation for this. This is going to be super quick, all right? We're not going to spend a lot of... If you, if you like stuff like this and it, it's interesting to you, then go home and knock yourself out. Um, Verse 47 is not there. The reason is because what we have are two primary sets of Greek manuscripts that we go to and draw from when we translate into English. One is the Textus Receptus, which, <laughs> kind of screw that up. Textus Receptus, which is also known as the Alexandrian manuscripts, which primarily were found in Egypt. They come out of Egypt, and then we have what we refer to or call the critical text, which is the Byzantine manuscripts, which primarily comes out of Antioch, which is also Constantinople. Textus Receptus, critical text. Critical is dated or or thought to be older, earlier than the Textus Receptus. So some of our newer English translations go to that as our source to translate from because they were older, okay? Um, King Jimmy, they, they didn't have, they hadn't discovered and compiled fully uh, the critical text um, at, at the time that he called for and brought forth an English 
translation. So they were all using Textus Receptus. That's why it, if you're holding that kind of a Bible, that's why it, it comes from there, is, is because that's what King James, that's what they used. But the newer ones, the newer translations, NASB, ESB, there's a couple other ones, they, they all go now to the critical text now that we have those manuscripts compiled because they seem to be older. Now let me say this, because someone might go, oh wow, like, well this kind of stinks, like this kind of rock in my world that like this Bible can have a verse and that Bible can't have a verse. I promise you, when you look at these, um, these manuscripts, either ones, they're the same. They, they, there's nothing, in, there's no differences in these Greek manuscripts that actually changes a thought or an intention or, or the heart of what it is that's being communicated. So do you want to hear, I mean, some of you already know what verse 47 would be in my Bible that's, that's not there. It would say, then a man said to him, hey, your mom and your brothers are outside and want to speak to you. It already says that. It basically says that in 46. In fact, if you, even in my Bible, if I turn to Mark's account of this, that, that is actually in there in Mark. So it's not like they were trying to hide anything or change anything. It just wasn't found in the earliest manuscripts. Okay? That's the difference. All right. Fun stuff, right? That was a bonus. Cool. Um, let's see where we're at here. Okay, first off, with what Jesus said, with what we see here, we need to know that Jesus is not just dissing his mom and his siblings. He's not just setting out to disrespect them. Uh, I mean, that, that would be pretty bad uh, if he was seeing that if that's what he's doing, it would fly in direct opposition of all the other things that the scripture says about our mom and our family, right? Especially like the fifth commandment given to us by God in Exodus chapter 20. Like, that, that would be a, a contradiction. But it almost kind of looks like it, doesn't it? The way that it comes off. I mean, he's been gone for long periods of time, traveling across the countryside with strangers, speaking to strangers, spending all his time with strangers. He finally comes home, and what's he doing? He's hanging out with strangers, speaking to strangers, right? Like, and, and there's a point where his family's like, okay, enough. Like, we want some time, too. You know, that's really what's kind of happening here. Like, can we get some time over here? Can we finally have a moment with you, you know, Jesus? And instead of Jesus stopping everything and cutting to his family, he uses their inquiry as a public teaching opportunity, which almost seems like he's double dissing them. <laughs> like, like, almost like ignore and like, not only that, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak to all of you about what you're seeing going on here. It's kind of a weird thing. Honestly, I mean, this must have been tough for his family, right? Like his mom, his mom, the Catholics don't like this. They don't like seeing Jesus look at Mary this way. It looks like a diss. But rather what Jesus is doing is he's making it known that the family of his father's kingdom is far greater and superior to the one that he has been born into. That's all he's doing. He's saying, my father's family is bigger than this one. My father's family is greater than this one. It is more expansive than this family. It transcends this one. It's more sure. It's more permanent. He's not, he's not saying that his, his bloodline is not of any importance, but, but rather he's saying that there is no distinction there, right, 
to, to, all, to, to, to all else who do the Father's will or the will of the Father, biology or not. And, and it is with statements like these that we are reassured, people, that the church of God, the assembly, this thing right here, that we are gathered together as a unit is no joke. The church is no joke. If you look at how Jesus talks about the church, his bride, it's kind of important. It's not to be taken lightly. It's not to be neglected. It's not to be treated as optional. And yes, I'm going to get on a soapbox, okay? And again, um, if you don't know me well enough, um, this is just me being, I'm not mad at you. I'm uh, kind of mad, par- partially mad at me, and uh, I just get crazy when I talk about things I'm excited about, okay? I'm not mad at you. The church is no joke. The church of God is of utmost importance to God, and so it should be the people, and so it should be also to the people of God, the people that follow God or say they do. And because this is true, I can't, he- I can't help but to be extremely skeptical of people who call themselves Christians and say they hate other Christians. I think I've probably said that before. Like in my ignorant stupidity, my younger days, uh, like I'm better than these guys. I don't know why they can't get it more together and think like me. You know what I mean? Uh, there, there were those dumb stickers that we all laugh at when we see one. Like, I love Jesus. I just hate his people. You know? Uh, that's like one of those bumper stickers. Uh, that's just a bad, it's just a bad statement. Uh, it doesn't work that way. It, does, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. I am extremely skeptical of people who call themselves Christians that avoid other Christians. Mm. What are we doing? What's going on there? Right? I am extremely skeptical of people who call themselves Christians who say they don't need or are better off without other Christians. Because it's fundamentally unchristian to think in such a way. Completely. I, listen, I get it. I have been, I have been hurt so many times by Christians in the church, backstabbed, betrayed, let down, disrespected, abused, all those things, just like I'm sure that you have. If you haven't, you just haven't been here long enough. You know what I'm saying? We, there's this weird paradigm with who we are right now as the church on earth, and that is that we are simultaneously saints and sinners at the same time. Positionally, praise God, we are bought, paid for, and declared righteous by the blood of the Lamb. But in process, in outworking, as we head through the wilderness to the promised land, gosh, we're a sloppy bunch of people sometimes. You know what I'm saying? And it does hurt. It's not always clean. It's not always perfect. We must not forget that we, were, we are simultaneously saints and sinners. We are still sinners, but we are His. We are His. We are still imperfect, but we are His. We are still hurtful, but we are His. We still fall short, but we are His. And because we are His, we are a redemptive-minded people. Guess that? We are a redemptive-minded people. So it means that we don't just run. 
We are a patient people, a long-suffering people, a forgiving people. We have been purchased by the same blood and are being sanctified into the image of the same Son. So we do not run when things get tough. We stay, and we strive, and we endure, and we persevere, even when it hurts and it doesn't make sense. It's what the church does. Listen to Hebrews 10. Let's see if I can get there. Oh, you guys all know this. You guys all know this. Oh, yeah, I knew he was going to pull out that scripture. Listen to this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Who's that? Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you, as you what? See the day, capital D, approaching. So, so like what's the warning here? Like what's the command, if you will? It's, it's to not neglect meeting together. Why? What's the problem with not meeting together? Well, if we don't, there will be an inability for us to stir each other up into love and into good works, as well as an inability to encourage one another. That's why. That's why it matters that we are committed and that we are fixed and that we are immersed in a local body of believers because we need each other. I need you and you need me. And you don't just need me from the front of a lens on a camera. And I don't just need you from the back of that camera coming through a screen. All right. Gosh. Um, So like, I love, let me qualify this. I love love technology. I love advancements. I love that God gives us things. I just wish that we knew only how to use them in a good way. That's, That's what sucks, you know, is we don't always use things properly that can be a blessing if used properly. Ever since we started running cameras out of both of our locations, it's amazing how many people I don't see anymore. But they say they see me. Well, that's neat. They don't, like, we, we don't have to come in. We don't have to be relational anymore, do we? See, what's, what's really rad is we can still get the teaching we want from the church that we want, the music that we want, that worship that we want. You know what I mean? We can even dip into some praise and prayer, which really should be private and local. That's a whole other thing. Right, but we but we don't have to have the relationships, and that's rad, isn't it? We don't have to be hurt again. I don't have to have someone sticking their nose into my life again to see how I'm doing. What kind of like how I'm doing in my marriage and how I'm doing in my parenting and how I'm doing socially, right? We don't have to, we can just eliminate all of that. So last about a month ago, uh, we um, closed the warming center. In our Lapine location, if you don't know, if you're visiting like we have, we take homeless people in half the year. It's more a homeless shelter than it is a church. Anyhow, we closed down at the end of the season about, well, the last couple days, um, someone decided to go through and celebrate one of our guests by taking a bunch of stuff, okay? We usually don't have that happen, but they took a bunch of stuff. And one of them was our camera that we live stream with. And so me and one of the deacons, Mike, that following week, we're down there and we're talking. And he's like, so what are we going to do about this camera? And I said, you know what? What if we do nothing? Like, what if, we, what if we don't put one back up? 
and it's, you kind of hear the gasps and the craziness because if you haven't noticed, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the, the whack job pastor here, okay? <laughs> the other two guys, they're level-headed and they're thinking, you know what I mean? Like everything's kind of, um, with me, I've always got to throw out the radical, like, what if? You know what I mean? That's just how my brain works. But I was serious when I said this. What if we don't replace it? What will happen? Oh, well, people actually, like, get out of bed and come? Like, because, because these are rad because there are people that are, that are bed-driven. There are people that are ill. And so, and so it's so wonderful that they can still kind of peek in and, and, and get their fix in a way. It's not the same, but in a way. But we're not seeing that anymore. This is the primary mode of transportation in how people experience church now. And I'm over it. I'm over not seeing people that I love that God has put into my life. If God's put you in my life, we live in the same neighborhood, we follow the same Jesus, why can't I ever see you? Where are you? Why can't I hear from you? We are so consumeristic. We are so about us, which is part of the reason that we have no idea how to value the church of God. It's because when we come into this living organism, which is the bride of Christ, it's not about you. It's about him. And I have to remind myself that every day because I'm the most selfish person I know. I, I mean, by default, everything goes inward. How does this affect me? What do I think of that? Do I like that or not? Like, everything's about me. I have to rebuke myself constantly, and I know that you guys have the same issue. I know that we're all broken that way. Like, that's our primary issue. And so we just consume, and we consume, and we consume, and we find more ways to make things about me so that it appeals to me, so that I will like that more or prefer that more. And it's ridiculous. We need to, we need to repent because this isn't about us. God has put you as an individual in the midst of something far greater than you. That's the money. That's the privilege. That's the value. I remember hearing a story, I think I've shared it before, that um, uh, I read out of a voice, uh, voice of the Martyrs which is a, a publication that we've gotten for a gazillion years. And what it is, is it's all about missionaries that are in dark, dark places all around the world. So it's letting us know what's going on with these people and reaching people for Christ that we otherwise wouldn't hear anything about. And I remember this, this, reading this one, this was years ago. It completely blew my mind. It was an article on this American pastor that was pastoring a megachurch like a humongous church here that was like super sexy, all the bells and whistles, cutting edge. And he goes over to China to visit the underground church for two weeks, right? And he hooks up with this pastor of this underground church for two weeks. And he's kind of um, like documenting this, right? And journaling this thing. And, and they are literally lights out. So they're, they're leaving their homes at night, when everybody goes to bed to get to this place of meeting that was sometimes miles and miles from where they lived. So they're walking, right? Oh, yeah, I, I know, uphill in the snow both ways. Uh, kind of. Uh, like, 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 like dedicated to get to this place where the church meets. And they, they, they're in a crawl space with candles and maybe a couple pages of Scripture worshiping God together. 
And at the end of these two weeks, this dude, this American pastor is about to come back to America and leave. And um, they're in the final worship service that night. And this, this uh, Chinese pastor leans over to him and says, I pray that someday our church may be like yours. And the American pastor leaned back over and said, I pray that someday our church may be like yours. Yeah, amen. Because this guy had his head screwed on straight by that trip to see what really matters and what the church is really about. And it's not about the things that we have made it about. It is so different. And I love where we live. And I love that I don't have to sit in the crawl space with you guys. That would stink. You guys, some of you do stink. Just be tight. You know, it'd be uncomfortable, it'd be dirty. Like, I'm glad that I have a car and it took me five minutes to drive out down the road to get here. I, I love the things that God has given us, but let's not forget what matters most. It's not you. It's him. And really, Christ is making this clear once more in what he's saying here. He's not dissing his mom. He's not dissing his family. He's saying, you see, this thing is not about you. It's not about you. It's about us. It's about all those who do the will of the Father. That's family. You know, we, we grow up hearing this thing about blood, right? Nothing's stronger than blood, you know? Like not, nothing, you know what I mean? More binding than blood. You know what? Uh, that depends. Um, like, because I, I think that in some cases, like there's, there's stronger bloods than other, right? And I know of no stronger one than the blood of Christ. And so, like, you want to talk blood? Like, you want to go down that, that line? Let's go down that, that argument. Because that's really what Jesus is talking about here. He's, he's, forget biology and genetics. We have been washed and bound together in the blood of Christ. We are blood. As blood as it gets. We are family. And this is all that Jesus is saying. Those who do the will of the Father, oh, here, we, here we go. Here comes the Reformation part where we, we all try harder to be better because that's what it sounds like, right? Those who do the will of the Father, but then you get to John chapter 6, and Jesus actually describes what it is to do the will of the Father, which is to believe on him who he has sent. <laughs> Regeneration. Regeneration. This is who makes up the family of God, the people of God, are those who have been regenerated by God. And they are there because they look to the Son of God by faith. And by faith, you have been made clean. And you have been adopted into the greatest family that you could possibly be adopted into. The church of God and the people of God. So let's not neglect. I don't know. I'm not even going to try to go back. to my. I don't know where we are. I think we can close right there. Amen? Let's love each other. Let's not take advantage of the privileges that God has given us as children in his family. Let's be fully immersed. Let's be fully committed. Because that day with a capital D is coming. And, and we all need to charge each other's batteries. Because it's going to get darker and it's going to get harder. I need you. And you need me. Not from a screen. Jesus, thank you for what you've accomplished in purchasing your bride. I thank you, Lord, that even though the days are going to get challenging for your church, the gates of hell will not in any way prevail. That you have secured victory for your people. I pray, God, for healthy convictions and examinations of ourselves and how we approach your church. And I pray that we would 
we would strive to buy in more. Not to gain favor with you, but just because it's right and we need it and others need it, God. So help us to be more obedient to that which you love. And I ask it in your name. Amen.